from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Colby. Yeah, yeah. Hi, it's Stephanie McCrumman from The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, June 5th. Today, the double standard of riots in America and what it's like to be in a nursing home during the pandemic. I think we have paid way more attention to the destruction that comes with a riot than we have the violence that comes with police brutality. So when we think about the civil rights movement, we want to talk about nonviolence. We want to talk about, you know, peaceful protest. What we don't want to talk about is the fact that a 14 year old boy was lynched and murdered. We don't want to talk about the fact that four little girls were bombed in a church where they were preparing for service. We don't want to talk about the fact that Megger Evers, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X were all assassinated. We don't want to talk about the violence that people are responding to. You know, the civil rights movement, we say it's about nonviolence, but I say no, it is about a response to violence, the violence that Black Americans were experiencing every day in their lives. So I think there needs to be much more honesty about how we look back at the past and decipher what is violence and what is a response to violence. Kelly Carter Jackson teaches in the Africana Studies Department at Wellesley College. She's the author of Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. We reached out to her this week to talk about the kinds of protests the United States has seen in the past and the language we use to describe people who participate in protests. The criticisms have been really disappointing from punks, thugs, looters, them being un-American or unpatriotic. You know, we've seen like the gamut of negative insults that could be hurled at people that are, for the most part, protesting peacefully. I mean, this country was founded on protest. This There's nothing more American than protest. And so when I think about this moment and I think about how, you know, change has happened over time, every major change that we can think of has come through some form of protest, some form of activism. And often activism that involves destruction or a form of absolutely. violence. Absolutely. So I think... There's a double standard for sure in terms of how we examine who's protesting and how they're protesting. So, you know, (laughs) I've seen a lot of these memes on on social media where you have like Michigan State when they win a game and the city's torn up. Michigan State when they lose a game and the city is, you know, like cop cars have been turned over or they've completely destroyed, you know, this whole block of property. And I was like, wow. (laughs) I used to live in Boston and that was just like how things were. If there was a big sports game, cars were going to be set on fire, buildings were going (laughs) to be set on fire. It just happens. <laughs> and but the response to that is often, you know, kids will be kids or, you know, that's just college students or we're so much more dismissive of that kind of violent response. But yet 
when George Floyd is is murdered in broad daylight, right? When we see this eight, almost nine minute video of this knee in his neck, and there's no refuting that, right? That that he was killed right there on the street. And people choose to set a police precinct on fire or a cop car on fire. I have to say that like, when we see how people are so upset about what's happening in the streets and they're more upset about that than they are the death of George Floyd. I say our priorities are messed up. And so, you know, the violence that I see is is compelling a response. And if this response is that three other cops are now charged in the murder of George Floyd, then then I'm all for it. But I think it's also notable that the way that people are describing these protests and the language they use when they're doing that in some ways is an effort to justify their response from police in riot gear who are taking really aggressive actions against the protesters. I mean, there was this opinion piece that Senator Tom Cotton wrote for The New York Times this week, and he's basically arguing that the government needs to send in the troops and really just like put down this uprising and use more aggressive force. And the way that he characterized these protests is this week, quote, rioters have plunged many American cities into anarchy. And and just describing what many would see as very legitimate and largely peaceful protests in this way of, of rioters and anarchy, it changes the narrative and makes the case for basically why the government needs to take more aggressive and, and brutal action in some ways against protesters. Well, that that's how racism works, right? You dismiss and you distract. So you dismiss people as just that's that's a rock thrower. That's that's some punk kid. That's a thug. And you continually distract them by showing that footage over and over and over again. So that that's the new narrative. The new narrative is not George Floyd. It's not Breonna Taylor. It's not Ahmaud Arbery. But it's these punk kids. It's these looters. It's these rioters. And I'm just, I'm tired of the dismissive language that doesn't allow for a much more complicated, nuanced look at the problem. Like, why are people angry? Why are people upset? And how should they respond? How should we all respond to murder? What is the responsibility of the state to address these grievances? No one considers all of these police shootings of unarmed Black people as chaotic as anarchy for the Black community. No one considers that brutality too much, uh, too aggressive, too violent. No one sees it as problematic. This is why we're marching, right? And I think one of the other criticisms that you've seen brought up is this idea that this is not the right way to protest, that there are other methods that protesters should be using. And it feels like it's this policing of what is appropriate and inappropriate protests. How should oppressed people respond to their oppression? There's no form of protest that white supremacy will approve of. So when we think about Colin Kaepernick and we think about him taking a knee, and this was two, two, three years ago now, people lost their minds. People lost their minds. They were, this is un-American and we won't stand for this and get that SOB off the field. And I mean, people lost their minds. I'm not watching football anymore. Overtaking a knee during the, the singing of the national anthem. And 
you know, I said to my husband, like, this is not a man giving a middle finger to the flag. Like, this is not a man burning the flag down. This is someone taking a posture of subservience. And we couldn't handle that. And Colin Kaepernick didn't change his mind. Like, he was still talking about the same things. Police brutality, like economic inequality, like the platform didn't change. But now that the protest has into something that is much more aggressive and direct, we can't handle it. We long for the days of people, you know, kneeling. And and to me, it's just, it's funny how you can give people an opportunity to do the right thing, but they don't change, at least in America. We don't see change happening until stuff gets violent. And I'm wondering, what are other moments from American history where we've seen protests that takes the form of physical destruction and and how those types of protests are responded to and and how effective they are? Mm. You know, I think that when we think about 1968, there are a lot of protests and not just like anti-Vietnam War protests, but after the death of Martin Luther King, over 100 cities erupt in violence. And in that moment, those riots were compared to slave rebellions. Those riots were awful, especially in terms of how we responded to them. Black people were called everything under the sun, right? In terms of, in terms of look at them, look at these looters, these crazy people, they're dangerous, they're violent, they need to be destroyed, law and order. And the amount of retaliation that happened to Black communities was so, so disturbing to me. And so I think that in this moment that we're in now, where we have the president saying he should invoke the Insurrection Act of 1807, which is an act that was created in direct relationship to slavery. When we have federal troops that are being called upon, I'm not exactly sure how to deal with that, but I know that we've been here before and I know that this has not worked. Those tactics have not worked. One thing that I think is really notable from the last week and kind of captures the the complexity of the situation is seeing what it's been like for people who own businesses who have been damaged in protests. And in some cases, you have business owners and, and oftentimes people of color, Black people, people who are affected by the issues that people are protesting. You know, you see them really heartbroken at the fact that that their business has been hurt, that windows have been broken, that things have been stolen. Um, and that's really hard. And you also have business owners who've been saying, you know, look, I I get it. And I, and yes, I'm heartbroken about my business, but I think the protests are more important. And I guess when you talk about this um, undercurrent of destruction as a form of protest, what would you say to someone who's business or or whose home or building has been hurt by what we've been seeing from these protests? I'm not, I'm not going to dismiss the devastation that a business owner would feel at the destruction of their property. I would never say that that doesn't matter. It does matter, particularly for Black business owners, because the stakes are much higher. You know, historically, we know that it is so much more difficult for Black people to obtain business loans, for Black people to open up their own uh, restaurants or or cafes or barbershops. The stakes are so much higher. And we saw this even in the pandemic. I mean, when we think about which businesses were getting loans, which businesses were getting support, were getting relief from the government, Black and brown businesses were the last to get that relief if they got any relief at all. So my heart is definitely 
with them. But I also heard a business owner, he was a business owner in in Minneapolis, and he said, businesses can be repaired, businesses can be restored, but no one can bring back the life of George Floyd. And when I thought about that, it just made me think about capitalism and how capitalism is so ingrained in Americans that it has taught us to value property more than people. That when the when the lead story is look at this destruction to property and not look at the death of this man, this woman, this son, this daughter, that in some ways our allegiance to capitalism has robbed us of our own humanity, right? It's robbed us of our own ability to be able to prioritize life over capital. And so I'm not trying to belittle a Black business owner or any business owner who has their property destroyed. But I think there's a micro way of looking at this problem and a macro way of looking at this problem. And if we were to look at this from the, at the macro level, at the huge level in terms of what is the change that we need to see, I think those problems take precedent over the destruction of property. Life to me will always take precedent over the destruction of property. What do you think is the end game here? I think that going into this, there was this idea that, well, people are taken to the streets because they want these four officers charged. And now they have been charged. Officer Derek Chauvin, his charges have been upgraded to second degree murder. And the three other officers who were on the scene, they've also been charged. But but now it's clear that this is way more than that. And that is not the goal that people are trying to move toward. You know, I never thought that it was just about these officers being charged. This is about systemic change to racial oppression, to police brutality, to mass incarceration. This is about the disproportional deaths of Black people dying in COVID. This is about school segregation. This is about this is about so much more than just the death of George Floyd, because these issues keep coming up over and over again in different forms and. People are not satisfied with the status quo. They're not satisfied with the norm. They're certainly not satisfied with racism being the norm. So I I don't, I'm not saying there's no end in sight, but the end will not just be a couple of arrests and maybe some people get fired. The end is freedom. The end is liberation. So we have to ask ourselves, well, what does that look like? for everyone, not for a select few, not for those in the power, but what does liberation and freedom look like for everyone? And until we see that, people are going to keep protesting. Kelly Carter-Jackson, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Kelly Carter-Jackson teaches in the Africana Studies Department at Wellesley College. And now, one more thing. Hi, I'm Rebecca Tan. And I'm Rachel Chasen. We're reporters with The Post. We've been working on this story about people living in nursing homes during the coronavirus pandemic. 
nursing homes and assisted living facilities, for a variety of reasons, are very vulnerable to COVID-19. The virus spreads very quickly inside these facilities, and they also house uh, very vulnerable people in close quarters. They've been some of the hardest hit since the pandemic started in the United States. About 42% of all deaths in the country can be located or linked to these facilities. And what we wanted to do with this story is really talk to the residents inside those facilities to hear in their own words more about what they've been experiencing in this totally unprecedented time. Tony. Yeah, well, I'm 91 years old. <laughs> uh, and I'm Lois, his wife. What am I? 82. 82. And we've been married um, 19, 19 years. years and going strong. <laughs> More than 120 National Guard soldiers being sent this weekend to New Jersey's long-term care facilities, more than 75% of which have cases of COVID-19. If anybody's positive, they transfer them, and they try to keep us from getting sick. And I have to hand it to the executives and the governor for bringing in the National Guard. They're doing a terrific job. Yeah, especially the young guardsmen come in. They, they are wonderful. They give us hope because they're here willing to help us, help us out. And because uh, we lost a lot of good friends in the other section where we used to live. But they made us move, thank God, so that we wouldn't get infected. So, so far we've been lucky. Yeah, I don't know what we do without the National Guard, really. Yeah. I don't know what we do. My name is Pearl Dixon. I'm 71 years old. I live here at Lake West Assisted Living. And I'm a great-grandmother and stuff. And yeah, we're having a beautiful day here, the weather here in Dallas. <laughs> it was kind of disturbing and to see how like the whole world was just shut down. In my 71 years, I had never experienced anything like that. And so many people in my hometown of Louisiana have really passed away. I mean, it's a small town and it just seems like every time I get a phone call, it's somebody else in my hometown that have passed away. I know it's a lot of them here in Dallas too, but most of my family is still in Louisiana and California. I just felt depressed. I felt down. I, I, and I'm one of those kind of people kind of like to be in, in charge of things. And I just felt helpless, you know, and, and, and it was just a feeling that I hope I never have to experience ever again. Um, Rosalie Hickman, my birthday coming up in June. I'll be 76, Brooklyn, New York. You know, I'm all, I was doing all right because I sit by in my chair and look at the one. And I look at a little TV, the supervisor downstairs give us some um, puzzle books. So I don't, most of that I was doing all the puzzle books she give us. That's it. I just go to the generator, uh, put my garbage out and come back. I haven't seen nobody. My name is Carrie Johnston. I'm in Davidson, North Carolina, which is about 20 miles north of Charlotte. I live in a continuing care community, which includes independent living, health care, and assisted living, and independent living is what I'm in. But most of all, the number one thing I miss the most by far is my husband. My husband is in the health care section here, and 
I would go see him at least twice every day and spend time with him. And now he's quarantined and I'm quarantined and all we can do is talk on the telephone, which we do four or five times a day. That's what has changed the most. I think that over the course of our interviews, it was clear that people who are even in these really different situations share some of the same feelings. And and those are of grief, they're of hope, they're of adapting. I think that one of the things that came across a lot was that people are all finding their own ways to cope. And at the same time, you know, the fear and the anxiety they have is also amplified because they're very vulnerable, they're at risk, and they know that every day that they wake up, you know, they face the possibility of getting the virus and, and dying alone, basically. Rebecca Tan and Rachel Chasen are reporters with The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Our executive producer is Madalika Sika. Our senior producer is Maggie Penman. Our producers are Alexis Diao, Rena Flores, Lena Mohammed, Jordan Marie Smith, Rennie Svarnovsky, and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. The Post Director of Audio is Jess Stahl. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post. 